Blog Talk Radio. This is Franchise Today, brought to you by FRM Solutions, providers of the best-in-class software solutions for franchise relationship management. Franchise Today is your destination for weekly information, conversations, and interviews with accomplished industry leaders, all of whom share best practices for sustainable growth and sensible franchising. Here now, your host, Stan Freeman, to kick off this week's podcast with the SoLink front of the house. And this is Franchise Today on Wednesday, July 3rd, 2019, the eve of our nation's 243rd celebration of independence. I'm Stan Friedman, and I'm coming to you today from fashionable East Cobb in the northwest Atlanta suburb of Marietta, Georgia. Hey, it was great having Rebecca Monet join us last week. You know, I often kid her about being the oracle of Zoracle. But that's exactly the kind of impact that her spot-on assessments have. And while their origins are based in science, seven sciences to be precise, their results are purely magical. Rebecca, thanks again for your friendship, for all that you do, and for all the sharing that you provide to this audience, as well as the franchise community at large. And before I introduce today's guest, Don Fox, who, by the way, is something of a wizard himself, both in franchising and in the culinary arts, It's time to celebrate this week's other birthdays. And as large as last week's list was, we actually may even eclipse it today, if you can believe that. So let's kick it off with happy birthday wishes last Sunday to Joel Labava, the franchise king, Vera Mazzillo of Proforma fame, my old friend from his franchise solutions days, Steve Collins, and my current partner in crime at FRM Solutions, Chris Spears. Then comes Wayne Evans, co-founder of Massage Heights down in San Antonio, and husband of one of Franchise Today's favorite guests, Shane Evans. And then from there, we head due north a few hundred miles to another of my franchise faves and another prior Franchise Today guest. Happy birthday to Shannon Wilburn, co-founder and CEO of Just Between Friends up in Tulsa. Also celebrating this week is franchise lawyer Scott Weber, America's best Bill Bradley, and this week's expansive list also includes best wishes to my good friend, cohort, and digital marketing guru, Eric E.J. Mayers, right here in Atlanta. Birthday wishes also go out this week to an upcoming guest, Angela Cote, who will join us right here on July 17th from up in Vancouver. And speaking of north of the border, happy birthday this week to Shelley Lynn Muldoon of WSI fame, celebrating this week from Toronto. And if I could, I'd put a drum drum roll out here right now as Patrice Rice, the ever-loving Wild Birds Unlimited's Paul Pickett, Marissa Fonts at Plave Koch, and U.S. Lawn's Dave Wells all celebrate their birthdays not only this week, but they share it with the 4th of July and some 327 million Americans who will be celebrating America's 243rd birthday as well as theirs. Let's take the final corner now with birthday wishes this week. For Fran Fran Fund's Sherry Sieber, my favorite friend and spiritual advisor, Sherry Christopher, franchisee extraordinaire, Tamara Kennedy, retired NFL defensive back and a PAFI PAFI cohort of mine, Adam Edwards. I'll top it all off in Dubai with birthday wishes to Santosh D'Souza. And one last missed one from last week from my good friend, Christina Chambers. Well, there it is. Another long list of happy birthday wishes And happy birthday to one and all. Hopefully, I've not left anybody out. 
Just a couple of quick notes today in the front of the house, one which actually includes firehouse subs. I picked up something this morning from the nation's restaurant newswire on a write-up that QSR Magazine's done about the fast food brands of the year. And QSR makes reference to one of the longest standing surveys done in history. The Harris Poll has conducted one of the longest running brand studies in the business. They are talking about the 31st edition of the Equitrends Brand Equity Index, which is comprised of three factors, familiarity, quality, and purchase consideration. More than 45,000 U.S. consumers were polled this year across 196 categories, according to the Harris Poll. And the common thread across all of these categories um, were a consumer devotion and respect for and expectation of performance from the brands. They use an, an academically vetted brand equity model with elements that consist of familiarity, quality, and consideration. So speaking of today's guest in the sandwich category, I mean, Don's got to be proud of this. He's uh, coming in third position behind Panera Bread and Subway, but the list includes Jersey Mike's, Potbelly Sandwich Shop, McAllister's, and Jason's uh, behind his, and some other honorable mentions like Arby's and even my old alma mater, Blimpy, not high enough to be rated in the top 10, but showing up as consider considerably noted within the category. Maybe Don will talk to us a little bit about that, too, in a few more minutes. First, too, I wanted to let you know about an amazing tour that's coming up starting on the 15th of July. There's going to be a franchise roadshow going on across the country as my good friend, co-producer of Franchise Today and host and producer of Modern Business Podcast, Ryan Hicks, will be joining forces with Zach Fishman, Brad and Sherry Fishman's son and franchising professional. And they're going to embark on a franchise tour, a bus tour. It's going to go across maybe 10 or 15 states uh, from the middle of July through August, making stops in places like Texas, Louisiana, Tennessee, here in Georgia, Florida, uh, the Carolinas, up to Philly and into New York, doing a series of 50 podcasts from on the road and vlogs as well. So there are sponsorship opportunities for you franchisors who want to learn more about it. Um, just drop me a line at Franchise Today's, pod, uh, Franchise Today's Facebook page, and, and I'll be more than happy to get you in touch with Ryan, who will actually be here with us next week uh, to talk a little bit more about this tour, what it's going to accomplish, and how some of you may want to uh, jump in and get involved with it. And I think that is pretty much the front of the house. And that was a, a belly full of birthdays this week. It's time, though, to get on to today's guest, Don Fox. Don is a restaurant in industry veteran with 45 years of experience, predominantly in the QSR and fast casual space. His first job was scrubbing pots and pans at the dish sink of a local Italian restaurant in New Jersey, which, while he didn't know it yet then, became his point of entry to a career in food service management that would see a trajectory that started at Six Flags Amusement Parks in 1976 and led to a 23-year run at Burger King before Don joined Firehouse back in 2003 as Director of Franchise Compliance. His career just launched quickly, and within two years, Don was COO on his way to then becoming ultimately the CEO in December of 2009. Under his leadership, the brand has grown to nearly 1,200 restaurants in 46 states 
Puerto Rico and Canada. And along the way in 2011, Nations Restaurant News named Don Fox one of the top 10 executives to watch. That year, he also received the Muffso Golden Chain Award as well as the prestigious Operator of the Year Award. In 2013, Don joined the board of the National Restaurant Association and actually uh, won the he was the recipient of the Advocacy Award that year. And also in 2013, he received the Silver Plate Award from the International Food Manufacturers Association and was named the number one executive in the Fast Casual segment by Fast Casual. Com. Back home in Florida, he serves on the board of the Florida Restaurant Association and Lodging Association and chaired that board in 2017. Don, I could go on and on and on, but I think it's time to say welcome to Franchise Today, my friend. Well, well thanks, Dan. I think the only thing that was missing was uh, birthday wishes for me, but that's not so March, so I'll forgive you for that. All right. Well, move, you, yeah, we'll get them in there appropriately in March. We just kind of <laughs> keep them firewalled a week at a time, and you can see why, as many oh. as there are, right? <laughs> yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll look forward to it. It was great anticipation. <laughs> but hey, it's a, pleasure to, it's a pleasure to be here with you today. So, Don, we first met when Michael Stone and I created the Pro Athlete Franchise Initiative after I got to know Firehouse multi-unit franchisee and Jacksonville Jaguar former player Don Davey, and then from him I met Greg Delks. Am I remembering correctly? Is that not how we met? Yes, yes, you are. Yes, great recollection. So, yes. so uh, you know, I want to know the how, and I think the audience does. There's an old saying about when you want something done, give it to busy people, and with with your profile, it looks like. You've just you've even had time to write a book somewhere along the way that I I read something about a a book called Patton's Vanguard, the United States Fourth Armored Division. Want to hear a little bit about that. But I want to start first by asking you to do what we ask our guests to do every week. And that is to take us to the place in time where you kind of backed into franchising, because unless you're born into it, uh, franchising tends to find us. We don't find it. So. Wind the tape back for us, Don, and take us to those early days. And, and along the way, we want to hear about that book as well. Well, sure. Yeah. My my first exposure uh, to franchising, uh, no surprise, came uh, via my experience with the Burger King system. You know, if I back up a little bit, you mentioned the, the genesis of my restaurant career. Was it a, a dish sink, two-compartment dish sink? We didn't even have three-compartment sinks back then. Uh old school, but uh, as, a, as a young teenager, uh, first job and went to Six Flags and uh, in food service, that was my first management position, uh, it, but in the uh, amusement park arena. It was 1980 when I decided that I was going to make a career of the restaurant industry, uh, not unusual for people to get started in the industry, have it as their first job, but not be thinking at all uh, in terms of a career, uh, I was going to be a musician. That was my original ambition, be a trumpet player. But 1980, uh, realized that that was not going to be a great way to carve out a living as, as much as I enjoyed it. Uh, was succeeding in the restaurant space, but felt that I should work not within the amusement park arena, but, uh, but actually for a restaurant company. That led to my joining Burger King. But no experience with franchising up to that point. I went to work directly for Burger King Corporation in their Tampa market uh, in, a, in a unit level management capacity. So with all that as a preliminary background, uh, my first real exposure to franchising was when I became a franchise business consultant. 
or franchise district managers, and they may call it at the time. And uh, it was groomed for that. Uh, Burger King back then uh, had a had a pretty good system for exposing the people that were exclusively in their company operations uh, to the arts and sciences of franchising. A lot of uh, good uh, training programs, uh, getting people prepared for it. Uh, very small. Uh, span of control. I, I find this very interesting over the decades since how this changes within organizations around the industry. I, I remember my very first franchise territory uh, that I had was comprised of uh, only 22 or 23 restaurants. It's very small uh, by, by most brands' uh, current standards. Uh, during during my tenure at Burger King, that, there were times where I would have a, a territory operating in the same capacity, but with 120 or 130 restaurants, a totally different animal than, uh, than those early days of 20 to 30 units. So uh, a lot of learning in those days, and uh, it was accelerated when I spent six years in research and development. Uh, at first blush, you might tell, well, what does research, development, research and development have to do with franchising? But, but from 89 to 95, in my capacity in R&D, I had to work intimately with every discipline in the business and very intimately with the franchise community. That was my first real exposure to some of the national level advisory councils and groups. Um, you know, we were constantly in a position through research and development of putting ideas, programs, promotions in front of the franchise community. Uh, so that was great supplemental learning and some, some of the dynamics of managing a uh, franchisee relationship. And I learned a lot from the franchisees that I worked with. I, I learned as much from the franchisees I supported as I did from the company that I, I worked for. So that was a long run with Burger King. And, and in fact, the last uh, seven or eight years of my career was directly in supporting the franchise community uh, back out in field operations. And, and then in 2003, uh, made the jump over to Firehouse. And that was quite contrast. Uh, Burger King, I believe at the time, was still the number two restaurant company in the world in terms of uh, size, revenue. And I was uh, making a move to a brand at, at that point that had 65 restaurants, mm. you know, based, based here in Jacksonville. Uh, but there was no franchise experience within the team, either the, the principals, the founders, or any of the 20 or so people that they had on staff. So I brought a wealth of experience uh, by virtue of my time at Burger King. Um, and with all due respect to, to Burger King, uh, frankly, uh, the, the most important things that I brought to the table was about what not to do as opposed to what to do. Uh, you, you watch and observe, you see a lot of mistakes made, maybe you make some yourself. And it was a great opportunity uh, to go work on a pretty blank canvas at, uh, at Firehouse to, to help get it right from the beginning and not make some of the fundamental mistakes that I had seen made uh, with uh, other brands or, or organizations. And I think the results of that more or less speak for themselves to have gone from 65 units in 2003 to um, come closing up on 1,200 uh, today. What would have precipitated your interest in leaving a 23-year career with a big monster like Burger King to well, to take I, an I, entrepreneurial to take take an entrepreneurial type position as you did here? 
Yeah, I, I candidly, it wasn't by choice. Uh, so I was uh, pushed out of the, the Burger King system. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody, I like to say, used to work for Burger King. <laughs> if, uh, Some point there, in time, right? <laughs> there, there's, a, there's, a long, uh, there's a long list of great, accomplished people uh, that uh, have done much better outside of the Burger King brand than they did uh, inside of it. Um, maybe, maybe for many of the same reasons that, uh, that I became more accomplished after I left. But um, you know, it's... Uh, to, not to diminish the experience, but uh, yeah, that's the truth of the matter. Was uh, was, uh, was was forced out um, and certainly made the most of it. But I think this is a, just another living proof that another example of living proof that opportunities and careers in franchising find us. <laughs> we don't find them. I mean, you had a great job, I'm uh, sure, but uh, did yeah, you ever and, dream? Uh, I, yeah. And, you know, and, and just, a, just a side note, something I don't talk about uh, very often when I'm discussing my, my background, but one of the most gratifying things that happened uh, when I was dismissed from uh, Burger King was the support that the, franchise community showed. So I had a number of great franchisees in our system that stepped up and went to the highest levels of Burger King at the time to, uh, let's just say, voice their opinion Hmm. uh, about what happened. And that was because of uh, clearly the value that uh, they believed that you know, I, I brought to their businesses and and to the organization. That was that was the greatest compliment at, at the end of those 23 years that I that I could have received. And and certainly as I look at the development of the Firehouse brand and, and growing our system to over 450 franchisees uh, today, I, I have such deep respect uh, and admiration for the investment and the courage uh, that the franchise community has when they decide from an entrepreneurial perspective to, to get engaged with, with franchising. And I, I preach this within my, my team as, as we built our team out now at, at our headquarters to over 140 people. You know, it's absolutely important that you always uh, deeply respect uh, the, uh, the commitment and the sacrifice and, and that investment decision that's made by a, a franchise franchisee it doesn't always make the franchisee right uh doesn't um it doesn't mean you're always going to agree on everything but it all but you should always treat that relationship with uh the respect that it's that it's due when people are willing to put their hard-earned dollars up uh, behind your brand i don't see anything but success coming from franchise organizations whose leadership has that shared vision and uh, and shares values the way you do to assure that the organization is on solid footing. So, Don, before we dive into more discussion about the consumer side of the brand and the absolute loyalty to the brand and the value proposition that it brings to its consumer base, let's just touch on that book for a minute. I want to learn more about what would seem to me that uh, you've got a, a strong affinity for the military with Patton's Vanguard, the United States Fourth Armored Division. What, what was the genesis of why that book got written? Well, back in uh, the late 90s, um, I had the opportunity to forge some relationship with veterans of that division. E- ever since I was a young teenager, I had a, a great interest in World War II history in particular. I've uh, never served in the military myself. I wish I had in, in many respects, uh, but, but I did not. But I had great admiration 
for accomplishments in the military and, and studying history and always had an affinity for that division. Uh, so fast forward to uh, the late 90s, had an opportunity to meet uh, some veterans of the division at, at various ranks, uh, soldiers who had served at, uh, as uh, enlisted men that, uh, you know, in the, the private and corporals and, and uh, still had the honor of meeting veterans that had served uh, as high in rank as uh, Lieutenant Colonel and Brigadier General, um, you know, at that point in their back in, you know, we're talking now 17, 18 years ago, uh, even then we're in their mid, late 80s, even even 90s. Uh, so through, um, through those relationships, I decided to take on the project of writing their unit history. No, no one had ever done it in a in an exhaustive uh, way, um, and that which was a surprise given how famed that division was. It was the most accomplished armored division in the American Army. Uh, so I took that project on and was fortunate that it was uh, traditionally published uh, back in 2003. Seems like a seems like ages ago. <laughs> uh, the, the that volume uh, covers the history of the division up to the end of the Battle of the Bulge, uh, basically the beginning of 1945, but the war in Europe didn't end until May 8th of 45. So there were still nearly five months of history uh, yet to be written, which I've just completed. So the uh, second volume of the book, all these years later, um, well, the, the work is done on it. So the publisher should have it out sometime before the end of this year, hopefully. Uh, so that's the, uh, that's the fulfillment of, uh, uh, of, of a promise to the, all the veterans of the division to uh, to make sure I captured their entire history. That's fascinating. And I appreciate you sharing that with us, Don. It's just, again, it tells it and helps the audience learn about the measure of the man here that we're, we're talking with and, and talking about. So let's go back to the firehouse, if you will. And you joined the company and rose quickly and became CEO in 2009 and there's been this incredible sense of brand loyalty to Firehouse that I've experienced through the years. Anytime I talk to somebody who's a Firehouse customer, you see them light up when you talk about the brand. Let's talk a little bit about the, the fascination on the consumer side before we dive into a discussion on the franchise itself. Let's talk about it through the eyes of the consumer. What is the value proposition that you consistently see um, attracting the consumers to to the brand? Yeah. Well, the, uh, the story starts with the food, but it doesn't begin and end with food. Uh, the, our menu and its inherent qualities, the, the, just the flavorful nature of it, the quality of the ingredients, the portion sizes, those are all born from the minds and the palates of the, the co-founders, Robin Sorensen and Chris Sorensen. They just have such a passion for food. And that was the case when they opened the first restaurant back in uh, 1994. I have a excellent culinary team now that's in-house, but Robin and Chris still to this day are involved in every menu decision. Uh, there's not a thing that goes on the menu or a skew that gets put in the restaurant that doesn't pass through their palate or through their fingers. Um, it's, a, it's a real strength of theirs and we certainly uh, capitalize on it. So, so people have a love affair with the food. Uh, we have. I'm very proud uh, when I look at our rankings. Uh, I, I rely quite heavily on Technomic as a benchmark device through their consumer brand metrics. There's other good services out there too, but but I've long been aligned with Technomic. And in most years, we're 
it's not uncommon for us to have the highest rating for taste and flavor of food and food quality of anybody in the industry. I mean, last year, out of 151 brands, we were ranked number two. The only brand that got a higher score was Ruth's Chris. Uh, so, mm. so, so that's front and center. The food has to be great, and, and we stay eternally committed to that. Uh, but that's got to be coupled when you're in the, in the when you're in the fast casual arena, as we predominantly are, and you look at where our average check is, and because you can't have the type of product quality that we have without uh, that, that comes at a cost uh, in terms of uh, ingredients and so on. You can't um, you can't be successful on that alone. You've got to, in my opinion, you've got to match that up with a great service culture. Uh, it, it, no matter how good the food is, if the at the prices that typically are associated with our product, if you don't marry it up with good heartfelt service, you're genuinely uh, embracing your guests and valuing their business. Uh, your chances of getting repeat business at the at the rate that you need it is just not not going to happen. So those are the things that for many many years uh, carried us. And of course, the, the identification with firefighters, uh, the theme of the restaurant being based on that. And that goes back to the family history of the Sorensons and, and, and choosing that to, as the focus of the branding of the menu and the, and the decor. But the real difference maker, the thing that has the greatest impact wasn't there at the start. In fact, it's really only been in place for about the last eight or nine years in a meaningful way. And that's our, the work we do in the community. You know, our Firehouse Subs Public Safety Foundation is an amazing story. I, I think it's very unique in the industry. Uh, the, the short story of, in terms of what it does, we fulfill grants for first responders uh, to pro help provide them with life-saving equipment. And there's other components to it too, in terms of training, and we have a military mission component. But the lion's share of what we do is we provide critically needed equipment to first responders so they can do their job more effectively. And in some cases, not only not only do their job more effectively, but help protect them uh, and make them safer as they go to help others. So to date, we've donated over $44 million worth of equipment. Wow. Now, now the, the, the genesis of it goes back to 2005. Yeah, there, we were about uh, 11 years old as a brand then. And, and the Sorensen family had always been committed to supporting the community, but it had been through other charitable organizations. You know, for example, we had a very close alignment with the Muscular Dystrophy Association. And there's traditionally always been a, a close association between the firefighter community and MDA. They do their boot drives every, uh, sure. every fall and close connection. But in 2005, we did a relief effort in uh, Mississippi in response to Hurricane Katrina. And the founders participated in that. And after being out there for, for about five days and seeing firsthand the devastation and being able to feed victims uh, in that area where the storm made landfall, they came back from that fundamentally changed in terms of their perspective on how they could give back to their community. And from that, the Firehouse Loves Public Safety Foundation was born, you know, with that mission of helping equip uh, first responders. And it took a few years to get our feet underneath us, to get the mechanisms of, of the uh, foundation together, the fundraising devices, uh, et cetera. But by about 2009, it started to really pick up momentum. And we were doing, uh, of course, we've always made very meaningful contributions ourselves. In fact, 
for the last two years, we've been donating a portion of every purchase to the foundation from the franchisor level. But uh, the Sorensons themselves, our company, the uh, our, our our vendor partners have donated millions uh, to it. But about 65 to 70 percent of the funds come from our guests directly in terms of the donations that they make uh, by rounding up their orders, dropping that money into our coin canister uh, devices on the counters, buying our empty pickle buckets. A very unique idea came about uh, from, uh, it was an idea generated by one of our franchisees to sell the empty five gallon pickle bucket pails that our dill pickle spears come in. Uh, this year alone we'll raise eight to $900,000 just from selling those empty buckets that otherwise go in the trash. So, but but the, that money, those purchases come from our guests and it's incredible how we uh, the community gets involved with us and what we discovered over time through a lot of uh, analytics and, and one very important study that Cornell University did specifically about our brand by the way not at our request they came to us after hearing me speak at uh, a National Restaurant Association show event asked to study us on this topic but they studied the link between our philanthropic efforts and sales. And they quantified and validated what we already knew from some more limited research we were doing internally, which was there was a very strong correlation between the, the level of commitment exhibited by the franchisee and their restaurant in the community, and then the sales performance that they enjoy. In fact, to this day, it is the strongest, has the strongest correlation with sales of any factor that we look at in our business. So I would suggest so to, the, I would suggest sorry, to those, ahead. I would suggest to those listening um, to take note of this as a huge nugget in the further development and growth of your franchise brands, um, as is the case always in franchising. We're not transactional in our mentality. We're more relationship oriented and I hear deep roots between the relationship between your consumer and the locations going much, much further than a sandwich crossing the counter. And I just want to highlight that to our audience because they tune in looking for nuggets about what to do and how to go about growing their brands. Don, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to get more into some of the news of the last week or so announcing this first major overhaul to your store design in some 20 or 25 years and what the impact of that's anticipated to be. We'll come back and talk about all of that in just a second. Franchise Today will be right back, but first, a word from our sponsor. This portion of Franchise Today is brought to you by Zoracle, providers of spot-on profiles, the gold standard of assessment tools that assure you're selecting the right franchisees every time. Unlike DISC or others that simply gauge personality or communication styles, Zoracle's spot-on assessments are all franchise-specific and based upon seven sciences that nail the results each and every time. Your prospects simply answer a few questions online, and like magic, Zoracle's algorithms scientifically slice, dice, and analyze their thresholds for risk their business acumen, and even their propensity for single or multi-unit ownership. Zoracle's spot-on analysis is like having a crystal ball. 
but there's no hoodoo here. It's all based upon science that flawlessly determines franchisee, franchisor compatibility, and accurately predicts performance. Why don't you schedule a demo today and take a complimentary look and see for yourself. It's the closest thing to a sure thing. Zoracle, spot on assessments, based on science, but delivering results that seem simply magical. Check them out at www.zoracleprofiles.com. Franchise Today is produced and presented each week by FRM Solutions, providing best-in-class CRM and document management software designed specifically for franchising. FRM enables real-time business intelligence, communication, and collaboration between all members of the franchisor's team and their prospective and existing franchisees. This empowers your team to simply and seamlessly track, access, and manage all communication to and from prospective and existing franchisees, including texts. Legal and compliance is simplified too with FRM's document management, and even site visits can be digitally facilitated and scored using FRM. Make today the day you give FRM a look and assure that all of your candidate and franchisee correspondence, including texts, are being permanently tracked and archived in candidate and franchisee records. FRM even provides state-of-the-art digital experiences for your prospective franchisees, replacing old-style virtual brochures. There are no long-term contracts required. Multiple upgrades are offered each year at no additional cost. No excuses, just solutions on the web at frmsolutions.com. Thanks for your patience, Don, as we pay the bills. And um, we want to come back and talk a little bit about how uh, after 25 years or so, you've gone through a major redesign. In fact, I posted a library catalog of about a dozen pictures that I picked up through NRN this morning. And the audience can find those on the Franchise Today Facebook page, a link to those. I mean, what a beautiful looking restaurant. Yeah, thanks. We're uh, really proud of it. We just uh, opened the unit on... uh... Yeah, well, yesterday on Monday, and uh, off to a great start. And as you noted, it's it's really the first ever fundamental redesign that we've done uh, for the 25 years that have preceded this. It's been just changes in small increments along the way. Uh, this is our first really almost from scratch uh, redesign of the of the concept. And it's it. I saw that I I read about it in addition to the photos, but I saw that there are a couple of things that have been contemplated in this that um, that seem maybe minor or tiny, actually, but not at all in terms of throughput and getting people through quicker. I, I know that when I go to Firehouse, it's usually going to be a, a heated sandwich and there's wait time. And now you've even got dedicated waiting area for people to um, to be able to find their way through the queue a lot easier. I'm just an old blimpy guy myself, Don, so you know sandwich lines mean something more to me maybe than the average guy. But what went into all that? Well, exactly. Well, you know, to give you a, a little bit of background on on the let's say the back of the house uh, challenges that we've had, uh, our existing kitchen operations are not uh, very ergonomically friendly. Let's call it, and that has implications in terms of speed of service, and, and it definitely has implications in terms of labor productivity. Uh, the latter issue being increasingly critical, uh, just given uh, not, not just the 
advances in hourly wage, but more importantly, just the availability of labor is just more critical than ever uh, just to, due to scarcity of staff sometimes. You, you've got to be able to do more with less. So, so our, our layout, our traditional layout, was, was not very friendly in those terms. So we went about this redesign to try to affect both of those areas, improvement, improvement in productivity, improvement in speed of service. Now, as you noted, we do, we do a hot sub, and in our traditional method, it would take two minutes and 45 seconds just to heat the meat and cheese. Uh, one, one thing that I think makes us very unique in our process and always has, we treat every ingredient in the way it should best be treated. Uh, there are other brands that take the whole sandwich and shove it down a toaster. Nah, that's not the best way to heat a sandwich. You certainly shouldn't mm -hmm. stick it in a microwave. Um, I could go on and on. But hey, the, using steam the way we do it, that is the best way to get uniform, absolutely delicious heating, to get thorough cheese melt that just seeps through the protein, uh, adds moisture uh, back, to, uh, back to the product. It's fantastic. And and bread should be toasted. And that's got to be that's got to be done separately. So so a bit more labor intensive and so on. But in the end, you you end up with a product that uh, just again because it takes two minutes and forty five seconds to eat the meat and cheese, it's going to be three to four minutes uh, to get a sandwich. It's not fast food in that sense. So we've had to work very hard and, and with uh, equipment partners uh, to be able to speed up part of that process to get get the steaming time down without sacrificing anything. You know, in terms of the uh, flavor profiles of the sandwich, and and this uh, new design shows great promise. Uh, we've been able to collapse the footprint, make it much more ergonomic, ergonomically friendly, less footsteps for the crew members. Uh, we really think we've made a great stride in in that regard. Uh, the other key issue we had to design for is the fact that so much of bit of our business now is going off premise, and that is has not been typical of our brand. Now, this is something that every restaurant brand is experiencing, from casual dining uh, down through QSR. It, it's a change in societal behavior. There's nothing anybody can do to counteract it. Right. Uh, I, I think we'd be kidding ourselves if we ever thought we were going to do something that's, that's going to bring more people back to the dining room. Uh, bottom line is you're going to be competitive and keep growing your sales, at least this is our opinion of it, you've got to do an increasingly better job at how you manage and perform when it comes to the off-premise business. Uh, to put this into some context, at the end of 2012, over 53% of our business was dining. Now that made us uh, unique as a sandwich shop. You can probably relate to this uh, via your, your Blimpies background. Traditionally, sandwich shops are predominantly takeout business. So, so we were an exception to that, doing over 50% of our business dine-in. Menu lent itself to it. We not only hot sandwiches, but we served them plated uh, you know, in a basket. We don't wrap them in fast food packaging. And that was the best experience. And by the way, not only was that the best experience in terms of the quality that you'd receive, the, being able to enjoy the level of service, the ambiance, it's also more profitable. You're selling more beverages. You're selling more chips. That's the way we'd, that's the way we'd like things to be. To this yeah, day, we get our highest we get our highest consumer scores based on that dine-in experience. We excel at it, but in many respects, it doesn't matter. No matter how good we are, our dine-in business as a percentage of our sales 
has drawn down. So fast forward from that 53 plus percent in 2012, and now we are down to less than 38% of our business dine in. Hmm. That's a dramatic difference. I'm sorry, we've had to go about the business. This is one of the fundamental parts of this new design is to, is to design for that and to do a better job on the off-premise. I'm sandwiched between two of your locations, one in Roswell, one in Marietta, Georgia, and I'm going to be keeping a watchful eye on construction to see when those stores get the new look. Because I'm, I'm telling you, if you go to the Facebook page and just look at those photographs, what you're going to see is just absolutely a beautiful-looking store design, and uh, I can't wait to see it in person. Don, we're, we're getting Thanks. to the last segment of the hour together, and I don't want to... Uh, leave us without enough time to talk a little bit about the franchise and the franchise opportunities that you offer. Uh, you made mention of 450 franchisees operating 1170, I believe, stores was the last count that I saw. So right. I know I don't have I don't have to ask you if multi-unit is is on the on the menu because clearly it is. But tell us a little bit yep. about who it is that should be looking at opportunities with you and who you're looking at and for and why. Yeah, we're, uh, let me preface this by saying that you know, we're still a relatively young brand. So in various parts of the country, we're in the earlier stage. So we have a number of operators that are single unit or two unit operators. We have our largest operator has 30 units. Uh, Don Davey, you mentioned earlier, um, is uh, close to 20 units. Uh, our, our, we are designed, ideally, to, for multi-unit operators. Uh, the sweet spot that, you know, I believe is for somebody who's pursuing three to five restaurants. I would like to see people even with more. There's, there's, certain, there's advantages. There's resiliency inherent in having multi-unit operators versus, a, um, versus growth that is too dependent on single-unit operators. There are, I'll leave unnamed, competitors who pursued that strategy, and it was devastating for them. Um, you know, even, well, we own and operate 38 of our own restaurants, and I am a firm believer that you should be confident enough in your own brand to invest in it, and you should be experts at operating it. There are brands who don't subscribe to that, and they succeed. I would never subscribe to that philosophy for, for the reasons I mentioned. And, uh, you know, as um, uh, well, just suffice to say, you, you, I want to I be able to demonstrate the confidence and, and the expertise uh, that um, – that, that I think you, that gives you the moral authority to, to operate. So, so being a multi-unit operator, we know firsthand that over the course of our 25 years running restaurants ourselves, we've had from time to time restaurants that are on the lower end of performance for a variety of reasons. And by virtue of being a multi-unit operator ourselves, we've been able to invest in those units, carry them along, wait for market conditions to improve, wait for the trade area conditions to improve. But you only have that luxury if you're a multi-unit operator. So that, that applies to our franchise community as well. So I'm a firm believer that really within any franchise system, there's just inherent greater resiliency and strength if you're built on a fabric of uh, multi-unit uh, operators. So as you mentioned, we're at 1,170 restaurants. Our domestic build-out uh, ideally would be about 2,500 units. We have every trade area mapped. We have for some quite some time, and we know where our restaurants should be. Uh, the key is just finding the right person 
and the right site uh, to be able to do it. Those, those are, if you're doing a great job as a franchise or leading, managing your brand, then, then those are the two other critical factors. Who operates it? Where is it located? You get those two things right on a consistent basis and your, and your chances of brand success go up astronomically. Do you have, do you have separate um, requirements for multi-unit versus single unit? I, I asked the question with this in mind. I had a guest on, a couple of guests on a few weeks back that are multi-unit operators, owners and operators of Great Clips, and with 25 or 30 or more units, um, you know, they look at the relationship between the franchisor and the franchisee as um, how to grow and scale at that level. For example, a single unit operator is expected to attend training and is expected to learn how to slice the sandwich or cut the hair. And, and when you own 25 or 30 or, or more, uh, that's not the level of communication that the single or that the multi-unit franchisee and the franchisor would be uh, expecting of each other. So they tell me when they look for additional brands, they look for brands that understand the communication and day-to-day -day functionality of what I as a franchisee are expected to do is a little bit different and, and the franchisor would get that. How does that look at Firehouse? Sure. Yeah, I mean, you have to definitely, someone that's building a much larger organization uh, has to have a certain skill level and uh, business acumen that perhaps uh, a one, two, or three unit operator uh, doesn't need to the same degree and still enjoys success. So we're, we, we franchise on a two-tier system, and we have a network of area representatives. And I think the way we deploy those area representatives uh, is unique. We put much more emphasis on the operational support and the coaching. We limit their span of control much more so than other concepts than right. many other concepts do because we want that relationship between the area rep and the franchisee. So a lot of our cultivation of talent within the franchise community, growing people to become multi-unit operators, comes from that relationship, from these very skilled area representatives coaching them up. And you know, if the franchisee didn't already possess some of those abilities. For many, many years, I had a standing requirement that the operating partner in the business if, if there was a partnership, it has to be an operating partner, and that operating partner had to have at least 50% equity, 50% uh, ownership uh, in the business is a fair way to say it, because sometimes they have the ownership, not the equity. We, we thought it was very, very important uh, to have that invested operating partner, uh, because, because the, the restaurant lives and dies by the quality of the operations and, and who that operating partner uh, is no matter how many restaurants there are, you need that strong operational hand at the at the helm. So one thing that I have opened the door to more because we're we're at a different place organizationally now uh, than we have been in the past. We're continuously evolving. I'm much more open these days to talking to operators of other brands with the multi-unit pedigrees. Uh, Still, when we talk to them, what I've got to have a great comfort level with is what does the operational arm of their organization look like? Who is going to be in that operating partner role, even if not on the, in the documents of the operating partner the way we've done in the past? Uh, I've got to feel confident that there is a, level of, a certain level of permanency and staying power with the operational arm that we know who we're getting in bed with in terms of their operational chops and their ability to, to really operate our brand 
we, we are not the place for the pure investor, if you will, uh, to get involved on the, on the franchising side, because we, we know the chances of success there become greatly diminished if, if they, at the very least, if they don't have the team that it takes to go in and do, and do a superb job operating the restaurants. So I'm going to hearken back and thank my friend Greg Thomas, who I was alluding to a few moments ago when I was speaking about the multi-unit mentality that the franchisee looks for from the franchisor, and I think you've articulated that well. I think the big nugget for the audience to take away from this portion of our conversation is really know who you're talking to, know what you're looking for, begin with the end in mind, as Stephen Covey would say, and then go out and communicate Mm -hmm. accordingly with those people who's expectations are going to also marry to yours looking for either the single unit, talk to them in their language, talk to them in their speak. Yep. And if talking to multi-unit do the same. And I think yep. that, that. And, and, and if I could add Stan, I mean, one thing that has remained a constant here is even, even though we have a very deep vetting process for our franchise candidates. And by the way, we don't always get it right despite how deliberate we are. But one thing that's never changed is I still meet every franchise candidate mm-hmm. and every day of discovery. In fact, with the group collectively, you know, any, we do a day of discovery every other Friday and we have uh, a slow day of discovery. We may have two or three franchise groups uh, coming in a uh, busy one. We may have seven, eight groups, but I spend about two hours with those candidates collect, not only individually, but collectively. And one of the main things I'm trying to accomplish in that time spent with them is to make sure that they clearly understand what the expectations of the brand are, the expectations of the franchisor. Um, I want there to be no misunderstanding about that. I want them to go into it clear-headed. Hey, and, and at the end of the day, if they decide our culture isn't right for them, if we're not right for them, I've done them a big favor. I've done ourselves a big favor. <laughs> If I've talked to Adam, uh, it's much harder, as you know, it's much harder to undo if you get it wrong. Um, so, so we're very, uh, so I personally am very invested in that. And, and here's, and, and to, to wrap up the thought, because if things go south, if it doesn't work out, uh, primarily because the franchisee doesn't hold up their end of the bargain, it doesn't happen often, but it happens. And if I'm in a position where I'm terminating a franchise agreement, I'm, because I'm, it falls on me as CEO, I'm ultimately I'm going to be the one who, who makes a final decision on something that critical and that meaningful uh, to the brand and to that person. I, I want to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they, they were told exactly what to expect right. and exactly what the like and, and, and what our expectations, what we thought the key ingredients were for success. Um, I, I, I never want to uh, be making those critical decisions, doubting whether or not it was represented to them uh, accurately. So uh, I'm, I'm a big believer in delegation and so on, but I do think that in every organization there, there are some things that, that it is fundamental to hold on to. And for me, that's one of them. Don, I only have two or three minutes left before I ask you to tell the audience how they can get back in touch with you. But is there anything at this juncture that I haven't asked you that you wished I did? Gosh, well, we have covered a, uh, a lot of ground. Um, 
you know, so I can't say that anything comes to mind. And I appreciate especially the opportunity to talk about the foundation and what we do in the community. Uh, I always uh, like to leave uh, conversations reminding people of, of what an important role we're able to play in, in their communities. And, uh, and, we, and we especially are, are attracted to franchise candidates, by the way, who value that. And, and increasingly, we, I talk to people in, dis, in discovery who considered that one of the main reasons they were coming to us, uh, because they knew that that was a way that um, they could immediately get involved uh, in, in supporting their community. We, we in essence, had, had laid the, the, the pathway for them. It's all about a culture of giving, folks. And, um, you know, while we haven't had the opportunity to really get into more of this today in his spare time, Don also serves the Board of Treehouse Eyes for children with myopic eye conditions. Um, I don't know, again, how you find the time to do all the things that you do, Don. And I appreciate that more than I can tell you in the fact that you carved out an hour to share all of these take-home nuggets with high value for our audience today. Tell the audience how to get back in touch with you and how to find you and learn more. Well, sure. Anybody who's looking to learn more about the brand or the franchising opportunity, just visit our website. That's the best place to start, uh, firehousesubs.com, and you'll see the franchising tab and we'll learn more. Uh, And I always uh, enjoy personal outreach. Uh, So if uh, any listener wants to touch base with me for a, a question about the industry or the brand, et cetera, uh, D-F-O-X at firehousesubs.com. I'd be happy to uh, respond uh, quickly to you. Don, I can't thank you enough again. Next week, I'm joined by Brig Sorber, Chief Brand Officer and one of the original Two Men and a Truck founders. This brand has a great story, comes from a great family that I've admired for as long as I've been in franchising. I can't wait to catch up with Brig next week and talk about his mom, Mary Ellen Sheets, his sister, Melanie Bergeron, and the spectacular franchise company that this family has built over the years. That's coming up next week on Franchise Today. Until then, remember, you can subscribe to Franchise Today at Block Talk Radio and download us from iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, or virtually any place that podcast libraries are found. You can even ask Alexa to play the latest episode of Franchise Today, and she'll do it for you. Until this time next week, I'm Stan Friedman. Wishing you the very best of all things franchising, and Franchise Today is out. Franchise Today is a production of FRM Solutions, providing fast and class CRM tools to empower relationships with prospective and existing franchisees. No excuses, just solutions. Find them online at frmsolutions.com. Join Stan every Wednesday at noon Eastern for another live episode of Franchise Today. Or, as always, download episodes on demand at blogtalkradio.com or iTunes.